Good evening. I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the second lecture of the 2007-2008 Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. This forum, founded by and named in honor of Ian Jack Thompson, was designed to engage students and faculty of the university and citizens of the state in issues affecting the world around us. Our theme for this season is Changing Nature. All of our speakers this year will explore the environment from different perspectives. We are grateful to our partners who generously cooperate with us on the forum season, the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, KLIN Radio, the University Bookstore, the Nebraska Humanities Council, and St. Paul United Methodist Church. The Nebraska Humanities Council is hosting simulcasts of each of the forum lectures at six sites across Nebraska, Scotts Bluff, North Platte, Kearney, Wayne, Columbus, and Omaha. A facilitated discussion follows at each site after the lecture. And St. Paul's hosts follow-up discussion at the church, 12th and M Street, the Thursday after each lecture. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you have the opportunity to forward questions to the speakers. Please write your questions on the cards provided and then pass them to the ushers. It's my distinct pleasure to announce that tonight's lecture will present a new format for the N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. Tonight's lecture is the inaugural Chuck and Linda Wilson Dialogue on Domestic Issues. Dr. Wilson is a retired cardiologist here in Lincoln and has served on the Board of Regents since 1990. He has worked diligently over that time to make the university a better institution and his fingerprints are on many of the major advances we have made in recent years. Chuck and Linda's goal in creating this lecture is to present both sides of an important issue at the same time. We are honored to have this annual dialogue in their honor and as a result of their generosity. The topic this evening will be the highly fueled ethanol debate led by Douglas Durant, Executive Director of the Clean Fuels Development Coalition, and Jerry Taylor, Senior Fellow of the Cato Institute. The first Wilson Dialogue will be moderated by Bill Lambrecht this evening. He is the Washington Bureau Chief for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Mr. Lambrecht is the author of two books, including the acclaimed Dinner at the New Gene Cafe, which appeared on Amazon.com's Top Ten List for Best Nonfiction of 2001. He also is a co-founder of the family-owned Bay Weekly in Annapolis, the largest weekly newspaper covering Chesapeake Bay. He has covered politics and the environment since starting his career as a St. Louis Post-Dispatch intern in the Illinois State House. He has been on the campaign trail for every presidential election since 1984, covered 12 national political conventions, six presidential inaugurations, and dozens of political debates in primary elections. Beyond electoral politics, he has written extensively at the intersection of politics and science on a variety of public issues from biotechnology to ethanol. Lambrecht makes frequent public presentations, most recently on behalf of his latest book, Big Muddy Blues, True Tales and Twisted Politics Along Lewis and Clark's Missouri River. Please welcome Bill Lambrecht, who will introduce our two speakers. Thank you very much for being here. Welcome to a debate about one of the most consequential issues and indeed controversial issues in the world today. Whether in rural coffee shops, 
state houses, the U.S. Congress, or Wall Street, chances are the issue of ethanol and biofuels, the hope, the hype, and the costs of this energy gamble sounded today. Like they might say on tribal land east of here, ethanol is big medicine. Ethanol has the capacity to transform not just agriculture, but energy and transportation. And it certainly is transforming politics and politicians. Witness the evolution of former ethanol critics campaigning for president in Iowa. Hillary Clinton, for instance, and last week, Fred Thompson. And then there was John McCain, once a reliable vote against ethanol subsidies, who remarked in Iowa earlier this year, I feel great. I had my glass of ethanol this morning. In Washington, where I come from, where our great speakers tonight come from, we don't drink ethanol. Well, maybe Doug Durante drinks it, but we talk a lot about it. And right now, the issue on the table in the energy bill is whether to increase the, the renewable fuel standard, our national mandate to use ethanol, by five-fold to 36 billion gallons a year. Fifteen billion would come from corn, I should add. The rest of it from cellulosic, when that te technology com comes along. Meanwhile, attitudes here and abroad are hardening. As a poll released today shows, the public overwhelmingly supports development of renewable fuels. By the same token, last week, a 50-foot banner draped from the Chicago Board of Trade by protesters read, ADM, Bungie, Cargill, the ABCs of rainforest destruction. In Doug Durante and Jerry Taylor, we're fortunate to have some real players tonight to enlighten us on this compelling issue. Doug is president and COO of Durante Associates as well, as founder and executive director of the Clean Fuels Development Coalition, a nonprofit that supports clean transportation fuels. Doug directed public affairs for the National Alcohol Fuels Commission, and he was a special assistant to the, in the Energy Department's uh, Office of Alcohol Fuels. Over the years, it seems like just about every federal agency dealing with transportation fuels has wanted him on advisory committees. He also represents a number of clients before Congress these days and federal agencies, developing strategies along the way for sailing Washington's treacherous waters. Not bad for a guy who majored in English and journalism and was a heck of a baseball player, too. He won't tell you that, though. Meanwhile, Jerry Taylor is a go-to guy at the Cato Institute on a host of matters related to energy and the environment. As I remarked earlier today, Jerry was libertarian before libertarian was cool. I've been enlightened by him over the years. I checked my clips. He told me in 1996 
If you looked at the environmental policies of George Bush and those of Bill Clinton, you can't help but conclude that George Bush has been far more green. That's George Herbert Walker Bush, by the way. Jerry is a prolific writer, the intersection of, of free markets and energy policy and environmental protection. He's a commentator for some of the nation's biggest news outlets, and like Doug, he sought out frequently to give advice to the powers that be in Washington, people who really need advice. We'll start with Doug tonight, and, and I'm going to make sure and leave plenty of time for your questions. Thank you very much, Bill, and thank you for uh, everyone here for has been so gracious and nice to uh, welcome us to Nebraska. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and, and, and part of this very exciting forum. I think it's very important to have this kind of forum to exchange information. Uh, I, uh, I don't want to lecture you so much tonight as to just share with you my vision and the vision of the people I work with, where ethanol is concerned and how it can fit into uh, some of the most important issues, I think, facing us in, in our era. And for me personally, there's a number of, of reasons that this is a, a, an issue that strikes Close to my heart, I was old enough to be driving in the 70s and the first time we ever experienced gas lines in days when we actually couldn't get gasoline. There were odd-even days. There were days where, uh, where we couldn't get that. And I remember as a youngster being very struck by that. And uh, we had the muscle cars back then, and we didn't really care about fuel efficiency. And uh, those things were about as inefficient as you can get. We, we practically stood over the cylinders and poured gasoline right into directly into the engine. So we couldn't stray very far from a gas station, and uh, so we, we, we learned firsthand when you go in, you can only buy gas for a couple of bucks at a time, and then some days you couldn't do that. And I remember that bothered me very much. Uh, I was very puzzled by that as a youngster trying to absorb the explanation given to us by our leaders as to why that was happening. And it was a very complicated situation, certainly the first time with the Iranian oil embargo. But I remember as a youngster, uh, it all boiled down to the fact that somebody didn't want us to have that fuel. And that struck me then, and it has stuck with me my whole life, and it has always been probably the main reason I'm so interested in energy. And so tonight I hope I can, uh, for those of you who have taken some of the criticism of ethanol that has uh, come with, with growing and coming up uh, and standing erect and, and uh, you get the questions asked and you get the criticism. For those of you who have taken some of that at face value, I hope I can talk you in off the ledge. Do not jump. Uh, this is not the end of the world. We are going to get through this. We're on a transition to what I hope will be a much more diverse biofuels economy and a whole slate of products that will come with that. But uh, that's what, what I hope to do here. And uh, there's a number of things that, uh, that, that I think ethanol represents. I've had the pleasure of working with some of many people here tonight in Nebraska and seeing firsthand the benefit that this provides to many of our rural communities. So that's part of it. But if I could have my first slide here, please. I brought pictures because I sometimes am better with visual aids, but I wanted to share some of these thoughts with you that, you know, there's a couple of things, there's different things. For, for me personally, as I said, it was energy security and, and the ability to get energy that has and continues to be of most concern. But that's one piece of it. Very closely tied to that is economic development and very closely tied to that is the environment. And there is an absolute groundswell and critical mass building that we need to do something about our energy situation, and the biofuels are going to be a big piece. 
Well, we have a problem. This was a line made famous in the book The Right Stuff and made more famous in the movie, and we do have a problem. And Houston, um, coincidentally, is where we refine our fuels, and we are choked in our refineries, and even if we weren't, uh, my big concern is can we get these fuels. Let me tell you what the experts are saying. Let me just give you a couple of these quotes. It took us 125 years to use the first trillion barrels of oil, and we'll use the next trillion in 30 years. Finding and developing all the fuel and power we need for our homes, businesses, and vehicles while protecting the environment could be one of the greatest challenges our generation will face. We're partnering with major universities to develop the next generation of biofuels. Now, you might think this is alarmist rhetoric and a bunch of alternative fuel guys set on taking over the fuels market, but in reality, that is Chevron. There are many oil companies that are way out in front on this and realizing they need to get beyond petroleum. And speaking of that, let me give you just some more expert opinions, that there is energy security and energy diversity. There's strength in numbers and security and having a number of energy options. And we are investing $500 million over the next 10 years to develop advanced biofuels. And that is truly moving beyond petroleum because that was said by BP. I could go on, but there are many examples of oil companies who are out front on this. So this isn't some fringe movement. This isn't giant agribusiness trying to take over the fuels market. These are people with market share at stake, and they realize that's dwindling. And why is that? Why are they alarmed? Well, <clears throat> of the ten biggest oil and natural gas companies in the world, all of them, 100 percent, are owned by foreign governments. ExxonMobil is our largest oil and gas company, and they are not even in the top ten of, of reserve holders. All U.S. companies combined control less than 10 percent of reserves, and at 2006 production rates, what we're drawing, there are just 50 years left of known reserves. Well, we are talking about a 60 percent increase in oil use projected by the year 2020. That's by the Department of Energy. There's pretty consistent estimates throughout uh, wherever you might care to look. And that doesn't really, in my view, take into consideration China and India. China is projected to increase their energy usage at a 7.5% petroleum energy usage, 7.5% per year, and India is slightly behind them at 55 And, of course, uh, that dwarfs us that we grow at about 2%. Well, it's probably going to be greater than that. The Saudis announced last week they were increasing their exports to China by 9% this year alone. So if they start drawing down at a greater rate than we even think, those reserves aren't going to last very long. 60% of our petroleum is imported, and that is projected to increase to 70% by the year 2030. And finally, two-thirds of the known reserves of oil are in the Middle East. And to underscore that point, I'll give you this quote, ongoing political instability in several producing nations has created excessive risk for new ventures. And again, you would think, well, who would say that? People who know about going and getting oil out of risky places. Another major oil company, ConocoPhillips. So if they consider this to be too risky and they're not going to go get it, then that's going to make the little bit that we can get that much more expensive, that much more difficult to use. So in my view, I, it just continually makes the case that we need to come up with alternatives. So is ethanol the answer? That's why we're here tonight. We're here to talk about ethanol. Is ethanol the answer? No, it is not. I'm an ethanol guy. I have been my whole life. It is not the answer. It is never intended to be the answer. It never portrayed itself to be the answer. And I'll get to that in a little bit of what a problem that's caused and part of the reason we're here. But it's not the answer, but it is a piece of the, of the puzzle. 
and it brings a lot to the table. You're talking about capital investment, job creation. The tax generation that we get from this industry to the local, state, and federal level is phenomenal. The dollars are nothing short of phenomenal. It raises the price of agricultural products, which is a good thing, and it lowers federal farm outlays because we are getting more value in the market. These, these are economic benefits that stay at home, which I think is very important. I mean home in the United States and home at the very local level. A 40 million gallon a year ethanol plant, just as an example, is approximately a $100 million boost to the economy with another 70 to $100 million through direct spending in that immediate area. It's 35 full-time jobs and 120 local jobs. It increases household income in the area of the plant by $10 million. That's people walking around spending $10 million. That is very real money provides local returns to investors. Many of the investors of these plants are not giant businesses, but in fact the local community and local farmers. And we're increasingly seeing the ethanol used locally. We're seeing uh, plants being put up E85 pumps out front. We're seeing local dealers take the product. So they are directly getting that benefit. And both there and across the nation, it is lowering the price of gasoline, which is a fact documented by the American Petroleum Institute. Ethanol brings environmental benefits to the table. It has a long history of successful pollution fighting. It reduces emissions of carbon monoxide, exhaust volatile organic compounds, NOx, particulates, hydrocarbons. Ethanol is an oxygen in it. It creates a better burn, and it burns these things up and improves tailpipe emissions. It displaces toxics. A lot of bad actors in gasoline are replaced and displaced by ethanol. And uh, a lot of things that are known carcinogens, originally lead, but then benzene and toluene, it replaces those, and it improves the quality of gasoline. I can't think of any gasoline that isn't improved by the addition of ethanol. It displaces fossil energy use. It reduces carbon monoxide and ozone through two federal programs, the Oxyfuel and Reformulated Gasoline Program, and it has been very effective in that. We have almost eliminated the carbon monoxide program, but it is in use Many of our western high-elevation cities continue to use it and depend on it a great deal. Uh, reformulated gasoline to combat urban smog and ground-level ozone uses ethanol voluntarily. It is not required in the formulation, but uh, the oil companies use it anyway because it's an effective pollution fighter. And it's renewable. reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and that, my friends, is something that is extremely important these days. Greenhouse gas and the quest for low-carbon fuels uh, is something that I've never quite seen anything quite like it. In Washington, there, you can't, every committee, every subcommittee, every organization is having hearings by the day on this. It is a near unanimous, bipartisan effort underway to do something about this. And everyone's sort of running around with their hair on fire, not sure what something means, but they're, by God, they're going to do something. The Senate, the House, the administration, uh, there's international pressure to act. So we're going to do something. And whether you believe global warming, is happening or not, we're going to control CO2 emissions. And not to throw polls at you, but this most recent one that we were uh, uh, peripherally involved in, the Washington Post, ABC, Stanford University had a poll, and just to underscore the importance of this global warming, 70% of Americans in this poll felt that global warming was real and required more federal action. 52%, which is a slight majority, but still a majority, felt that it was very or extremely important to them. So I think we've seen public opinion go, uh, we want to do something about this. Everybody wants to do something. Fuels are certainly a place to start. Ethanol's value in CO2 is going to vary. 
Not all biofuels are created equal. Some are going to be better than others. Newer plants have greater efficiencies and are going to have a greater role to play than some of the older ones. But we are constantly improving those efficiencies, and we're getting closer uh, to these next-generation fuels that will have low or no energy inputs. So that's an extremely uh, good possibility that ethanol will play a key role in there, and that's still developing. So with that and what ethanol brings to the table, what we're, the reason, again, that this has become somewhat controversial and somewhat contentious is that <clears throat> I'm finding that the enemy of the good is the perfect. And I believe ethanol is very good, and I believe it brings a lot of things to the table, and I just gave you a very uh, short uh, set of examples. But one of the things we have to deal with is the panacea problem. And the panacea problem is where we are sometimes dismissed, ridiculed, challenged uh, for not being a panacea. And when the president, probably more so than anybody, raised the public consciousness of uh, ethanol and our energy situation by talking about switchgrass and the now famous speech. Uh, the press scurried away and, and, and looked into really the magnitude of our fuel use and what ethanol could do and came back and said, gee, you're not a superhero. You're not a panacea. You can't solve our dependence on gasoline. You can't wean us from imported oil. And those of us in the industry, you know, we're very chagrined about that because we, we never said that. And uh, we understand the numbers all too well about how much fuel we use, and never in our wildest dreams would I imagine that. And I think uh, we have a very efficient and good transportation system with oil, and uh, uh, our hope is to augment that, to supplement that, to improve it, but uh, certainly no delusion of replacing it. Part of that is due to what I call the Brazil syndrome. And when we first had these incredibly drastic price spikes of a couple of years ago when uh, gasoline went three and close to four dollars per barrel uh, per gallon, uh, everyone said, well, gosh, why can't we do what Brazil did? Brazil became energy independent. They got themselves off oil. And why can't we do that? Well, we're a totally different country. We use ten times the amount of fuel they do, ten times the cars. It's absolutely impossible to do what they've done. They have a totally different feedstock available to them with sugar and sugar cane. That's much less expensive than any of our feedstocks. So it was not a fair comparison. But again, by uh, not being realistic about what we could do, it was somehow portrayed and continues to be that, that we're, um, uh, we're not able to, to have any success when, in fact, we can be very successful, but just not at that level. The next thing that happened to us to create this problem is the accuracy in reporting and assessing what's going on. Again, I'll refer to when the president first mentioned the possibility of producing this much fuel. Uh, he did not say 36 billion gallons of ethanol. I had the talking points from the White House in my hand, and I can show any of you. He never said that. He said alternative fuels like ethanol. And, in fact, the president favors uh, an equal footing with ethanol, non-renewable fuels like coal to liquids, uh, imported fuels, other things. So it was not all ethanol. And what that did was, unfortunately, the reporting created some hysteria, and all of a sudden we were accused of uh, you know, needing to uh, plow under Lincoln and Omaha and annex parts of Canada and Mexico in order to grow all this corn, when in fact that was not what he was calling for. Since then, we have legislation that is all renewable, but again, the, the hysteria came from inaccurate reporting of what was actually being proposed. And I think that was laid unfairly at ethanol's doorstep, and uh, we were asked to uh, answer a lot of questions I didn't think we really needed to answer because it was, it was not relevant. And then the other thing is the size factor, you know, how much matters. Uh, what is significant and what's not significant. At today's prices, and those numbers I showed you before about dependency, I don't know how anything 
could be insignificant. And when you look just at 10% ethanol, would be 15 billion gallons. We use 150 billion gallons of gasoline in this country. 10% um, ethanol blends would be 15 billion gallons of ethanol. And at $2.5 a gallon, that's $38 billion. And even if you could just keep that, even if it wasn't saved, that it was just kept locally, I think that would have great benefit. Uh, so I, I'd like to talk about what ethanol has and not, not what it's not. We know what it's not, and I'd like to focus on what it is. And what it is is something that uh, has a positive energy balance, another issue we've heard a lot about. I don't think it's that important if you can convert energy to the form that you need it. But we have had, since 1989, 16 studies done, and the majority of those showed a positive energy balance. Uh, some of those that were negative continue to come back from the same individual. The U.S. Department of Agriculture does studies, as does DOE. They have been uh, very positive. Uh, I tend to believe those. These are modeling exercises about what you count and don't count. And um, I, I think we're taking our eye off the ball to talk about latent BTUs. It's really BTUs, how you need them and what they can do. And all carriers of energy are negative. Electricity, gasoline, none of these things are positive. So. Uh, particularly in, in the older refineries, uh, they use a lot of energy to make gasoline, and, and that's just understood. So, again, ethanol shouldn't be held to a higher standard than the fuels it's trying to replace. Corn husker state, of course, we've got to talk about corn. Corn is in the crosshairs. That has gotten a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, I believe, and there are people that know a lot more about corn in this room than I do, but I believe we have sufficient supplies for the foreseeable future. Uh, we are uh, at a very reasonable pace now to meet and exceed existing law, but we're trying to decide what the appropriate level is to go from here. Uh, I think from everything I've seen and read that a 15 billion gallon a year uh, level from corn is possible. Uh, one of the things that when we are criticized for corn, we take today's yield and today's crops and jump ahead 20 years and, uh, and, and don't grow with the, uh, the market as we will be able to do. So we're being asked to explain how we could produce that much 20 years from now based on today's numbers. We have had a history of increasing yield per acre. We've had a history of increasing the yield on a uh, gallon per bushel. So I believe that corn can do something for us up to a point. I don't know what that point is, but I think uh, we're going to find it, and I think the market will shake some of that out. One of the most interesting and curious things we run into in our business is that there is often a claim that there was an unintended consequence of uh, using corn for, for fuel, and that is that it raised the price of corn. And I mentioned I was old enough to be driving muscle cars in the 70s. I was also uh, old enough to be around when the tractor cades came to Washington, and the tractor cades by farmers who said, we can't continue to have such low-value products. We need to find new markets and find new values. And so the, uh, turning this into food, feed, and fuel has done that. Uh, to whatever extent that the increase, and there has been an increase, and again, we, we wanted that, uh, to whatever extent that has impacted food prices has been extremely nominal. There has been very little appreciation in consumer food prices. This is documented by study after study, the Consumer Price Index, Department of Agriculture. It just hasn't translated to food prices. So I think that's been very overblown. What has not been discussed enough is the impact of energy costs on food. And that is a two or three, three to one ratio to what the raw material of, of corn would be because of the processing, packaging, transportation. And it's, I find it curious that no one seems to raise this, that as gasoline and diesel go up 50 and 60 percent, that it's not 
obvious that that's going to have a big impact as well. Also, world demand. The world demand for our corn is increasing, and it's not to starving nations. It's the people that want to increase their meat intake, they want to increase their dairy intake. They're paying more for our products. So finally, we're getting a better value for that, and our corn exports to uh, countries that are what we would call uh, undernourished or the malnutrition countries has not changed whatsoever, and uh, that's not, we're not affecting human consumption at this point. And all of these increases are, we historically have a 2 to 4% increase, and that's the kind of numbers we're in now. There's little spikes. It's come back down, and the Department of Agriculture says we should be looking for 3.5% at the most this year of an increase. So my final <clears throat> thought I'd like to leave you before I take a breath is that this ethanol is more than just corn. I mean, I know we're in Nebraska and it's a cornhusker state, but we, we really need to look beyond there. And corn is. I honestly feel corn is a pathway to the future. If we can make ethanol from corn, we're going to make ethanol from cellulose. We're going to learn how to do that, and we are learning. There's plants here. There was an opening at a, at a very local plant recently that's doing that. Uh, we're going to get better at this. There's a plant not far from here that's a completely closed-loop system that uses all internal energy from manure and digesters and the feed and the cattle, and it's all contained. There's no outside energy whatsoever. So these are emerging technologies, developing technologies, things that, we're, that will come from this first generation. And we also have the opportunity to make higher alcohols. We can go right past our, uh, ethanol, um, things like butanol. We have DuPont and BP and others very interested in butanol, which is a better alcohol in terms of some of its characteristics, its fuel characteristics. And you can make literally make green gasoline and green diesel. So this is sort of, the, again, part of the next generation. And, and overall, make true biorefineries, things that can make a whole slate of products, all of which will reduce petroleum. Um, Bio-based products for every, all kinds of cleaning agents, lubricants, things like that, many of which have, have petroleum-based. Uh, chemicals that can do a whole host of things that can come out of these, and just this whole range of petroleum substitutes. And in the final analysis, for uh, I do some work with General Motors. I do some work with a lot of other universities. And if you look at this graph behind me, you can see that we really don't think corn and grain ethanol is going to have that big of a piece of the, of the uh, pie. We think the opportunity is there for cellulosic ethanol, and that's going to be from a bunch of different things, crop residues, forest residues, municipal solid waste in some of our cities, um, all kinds of different things that could potentially be made. But none of them are going to be made. And by the way, you can see our very optimistic scenario is maybe 40 or 35 or 40 percent. So... Uh, we're trying to be realistic about this. It's a long way to go. This is a process. The things we are doing today with ethanol are setting the stage for tomorrow. And uh, I believe it's the right position to take, and I think uh, we are on the right path. And with that, Mr. Moderator, I will take a breath and uh, let Mr. Taylor have his moment. So thank you very much. Well, I want to thank the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues for inviting me to be here tonight. It's a real pleasure to be in Nebraska, but I have a little bit of trepidation because, after all, if there is a national religion in the United States, it's really not Christianity. It's corn. And this is the Vatican, Nebraska. And I'm an agnostic. Actually, that's not quite right. <clears throat> it's my proposition that if ethanol has economic merit, 
it doesn't need a dime of subsidy. If Mr. Durante is correct about all the wonders that ethanol will provide our economy and motorists and rural America and whatnot, then it doesn't need a dime of taxpayer help. No corporate welfare is necessary. But if ethanol lacks economic merit, no amount of government subsidy will provide it. Now, it's not surprising to me that people in the ethanol business have a million and one reasons for why we ought to throw government taxpayer money at ethanol. We didn't hear too many of them tonight because Mr. Durante was less concerned about making the case for subsidy than he was about making the case for ethanol. And that's all fine. But this is primarily a discussion about subsidy because if it were not for government programs, subsidies, and orders for the economy to consume X amount of ethanol every year, regardless of price, there would be no ethanol industry of consequence. And that's something the ethanol industry will tell you themselves. So is there a good reason for these subsidies? I don't think so. Let me go through some of the arguments we've heard to justify them. The first claim we often hear is that, well, ethanol is renewable energy, and we should want to promote renewable energy, and subsidies are, you know, worthwhile because renewable energy is good. Put aside whether that makes any sense to you, the fact is ethanol is not a renewable fuel. According to a study from the University of California at Berkeley, which was published in Science Magazine last year, about 5 to 26 percent of the energy content of ethanol is renewable. The balance of the, eth of the energy that comes from ethanol comes from the staggering amount of coal and natural gas necessary to produce corn and process it into ethanol. Ethanol is simply a way of using coal and natural gas to move our cars. It is not, on balance, a renewable fuel. Another claim we often hear is that ethanol will lead to energy independence. Well, Mr. Durante didn't make that argument tonight. Good for him. But let me put a fine point on it. If every single kernel of corn produced in the United States last year were dedicated to ethanol production, it would displace all of 12 percent of America's gasoline use. Now, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which is the analytic arm of the U.S. Department of Energy, believes that the practical limit for domestic ethanol production giving costs is about 700,000 barrels of ethanol a day, a figure they don't think is realistic until 2030. To put that into perspective, that translates into 6% of U.N. transportation fuels 24 years hence. So not only will ethanol not make us energy independent, ethanol will not make much difference at all. Another claim we hear is that corn ethanol is a more dependable source of energy than foreign oil. Say, well, the fact is, is that I'd rather rely on Nebraska corn farmers than shakes from the Middle East for our energy supply. That seems to make some intuitive sense because, after all, we know that production in the Middle East can vary quite a bit from terrorism, wars, and that sort of thing. But the belief that corn is a more dependable source of energy is simply belied by the facts. For instance, if you looked at data running from 1960 to 2005, and you measure the variability of corn harvest, and then you measure the variability of oil imports in the United States, you would find that corn harvests are twice as variable, and the corn market is twice as volatile as the market for imported oil. So by moving away from oil to ethanol, you are trading off geopolitical risks for risks associated with nature, which are twice as large as the one you escape from. So ethanol does not make our supplies of energy more reliable. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They make them less reliable. Another claim we hear is that ethanol is an ec economic weapon against uh, uh, Islamic terrorists. I didn't hear that argument tonight, but I hear that quite a bit in Washington. If you listen to some people in uh, Washington, D.C., you'd think that ethanol is our secret weapon against al-Qaeda. If you throw a couple of barrels of ethanol at uh, bin Laden, he will make falafels for a living or something like that. 
Now, this is a little silly because if the EIA is correct about the practical limit of domestic corn ethanol production, the most that subsidy can do is to reduce the price of oil by three-tenths of one percent. So if you are of the opinion that our oil purchases are funding terrorism, then ethanol makes virtually no difference whatsoever. A three-tenth of one percent drop in oil prices will not cause anyone to lose sleep. But regardless, if you look at the history in world oil markets, you'll find there is, curiously enough, absolutely no correlation whatsoever between terrorism and oil prices. In other words, if it were true that the more money we spent on oil, the more money was in the hands of terrorists and thus the more uh, muscular international Islamic terrorism might be, you'd expect to see some correlation with oil prices and Islamic terrorist acts. And you'd find if he did the regression analysis, there's none whatsoever. Think about it. 1990s were the decade of the lowest oil prices and inflation-adjusted terms in history. Yet what did we see in the 1990s? We saw the rise of al-Qaeda. We saw the rise of Hamas and Hezbollah. We saw the beginning of al-Qaeda attacks, even while oil prices were but a small fraction of what they are today. So the possibility that, that ethanol programs by themselves will do anything constructive in this area, I think, is just mistaken. Another claim we hear is that ethanol is economically competitive now. Well, this just simply isn't true. The best numbers we have on the economics of ethanol come from a 2002 producer survey conducted by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What they found is that marginal production costs for ethanol in 2002 were about a dollar a barrel, excuse me, a dollar a gallon, and the capital costs associated with ethanol production were about a dollar fifty a gallon. Now, this is important because oftentimes you hear about the price of ethanol and people say, well, it's about a dollar a gallon. What you're hearing are marginal production costs. In other words, if somebody gives you an ethanol plant, gives you the keys and say, go forth and make ethanol, how much will it cost you? Uh, about a buck. But nobody gives you plants for free. So the capital cost plus the variable operating cost means that ethanol costs at least 250 a gallon to make, at least in 2002. But since 2002, corn prices have gone up, apparently to no consequence whatsoever to food price, this being some sort of miracle that I was unaware of. But the fact is now production costs, at least at the margin, are about a buck fifty a barrel, a gallon, not uh, a dollar, because of the rise in corn prices, which means that ethanol costs about three dollars to make today, not a dollar fifty or anything of the sort. But that three dollars production cost isn't the, isn't the end of the story. It's just the beginning because ethanol has much less energy content than gasoline about two-thirds of the, of the BTUs that gasoline has. So if you want to know how much it would cost you to buy enough ethanol to displace a gallon of gasoline, you take that ethanol figure, you multiply it by 1.5. And that means production costs on a, gas, on a gallon of gasoline equivalent term is about 450 for a gallon of ethanol. Now, of course, it, average industry production costs aren't all that important because the prices at, in the marketplace don't really, aren't necessarily tied to production costs. They're mostly related to what the market will bear. So if you want to know how economic ethanol is, rather than look at production costs, which are still pretty interesting, you look at market prices. Well, what are market prices? Well, last week, E100, that is pure ethanol, was selling in U.S. spot markets for an average of about a buck eighty-four a gallon. That looks pretty good compared to the fact that conventional gasoline was selling in those same spot markets for two seventeen a gallon. But that's not adjusted for energy content. If you want to know what that $1.84 a gallon in ethanol meant as far as if you want to compare apples and apples, compare it with gasoline, and you do the math, what you find out is the gallon of gasoline equivalent cost of ethanol last week was not $1.84, it was $2.77 a gallon compared to conventional gasoline, which cost $2.17 a gallon. Now, Mr. Durante says, oh, the oil industry loves that kind of thing. Well, the oil industry uses ethanol as a way of making some of their fuels cleaner, but there are other ways of doing it. There are other additives that they can use. 
And there aren't too many people in the oil industry who'd be paying these kind of prices where they're not a gun to their head and a mandate from Washington that they consume X percent regardless of price, because that's the rule in Washington today. And if Mr. Dranty believes that uh, the industry would use ethanol willingly of their own uh, choice without the government mandate, I challenge him to lobby to remove that mandate, and we'll see what happens. Another claim we often hear is that ethanol reduces air pollution. Now, this is just a, this is a, uh, a classic example of only hearing part of the story. Now, it turns out that if you measure the emissions, uh, the air emissions from a tailpipe in a car, ethanol looks a little bit better than conventional gasoline on most metrics. And they reflect the numbers, more or less, that you heard from Mr. Dranny. But ethanol has more evaporative emissions than gasoline, which means more, of the, more air emissions when you're at the fueling station than with conventional gasoline. If you add that into the calculation, we find that ethanol, in, in total, increases the emissions of hydrocarbons, nitrogen oxide, non-methane organic compounds, and air toxics relative to conventional gasoline, though it does decrease the emissions of carbon monoxide, as Mr. Dranny said. And this, these facts come from a thorough review of the academic literature conducted by Professor Robert Niven in 2005. That is the consensus of that particular literature. So what you're doing is getting lower carbon monoxide emissions for ethanol and higher emissions of virtually everything else. Question. How many cities in the United States of America violate federal air quality standards for carbon monoxide? The answer is zero. Question. How many cities in the United States of America violate federal air quality standards for low-level ozone, which is what happens from the, all the other incre emission increases that are associated with ethanol? Answer. About 140-odd cities. Ethanol makes air pollution worse and not better. Now, ethanol proponents often say, well, but, you know, bigger, stronger blends of ethanol, not E10, but E85, would be better. Blends of fuel, which are 85% ethanol, 50% gasoline, that that would improve air quality more than, you know, more than E10. But that's not correct. Uh, not only did Professor Niven's review of the literature find that the opposite was the case, but recently an interesting study from Professor Mark Jacobson at Stanford found that universal use of E85 would actually increase ozone-related mortality and hospitalizations in Los Angeles by 9% and 4% in the United States as a whole. So, so ethanol, far from being a friendly environmental fuel, actually pollutes more than conventional gasoline, which moves us to a related claim that ethanol is a useful uh, a product for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, virtually all studies show that the greenhouse gas emissions from ethanol are about the same as the greenhouse gas emissions from gasoline if we're just looking at the two fuels. The reason you see disagreements in the literature isn't because there's any disagreement about that. The disagreement is how to treat the co-products associated with ethanol at the processing plant because there are a lot of feed grains and other things that are produced at these ethanol plants, and how you treat them will heavily influence what your calculations are as far as greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the strongest study published on this issue was published by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They examined the best energy input data available for the very best corn-growing region in the world, Iowa, optimal conditions. And what they found was that E10, again, that's blends of fuel, which are 10% ethanol, 90% gasoline, increases, increases greenhouse gas emissions by 2% relative to gasoline. But if you subtract out 20% of, of ethanol's energy inputs to account for these co-products I mentioned, then E10 has no net effect on greenhouse gas emissions at all. Now, what about pure grain ethanol, E100? They found that the numbers are even more arresting. E100, according to the same study from MIT, 
increases greenhouse gas emissions by 23% relative to gasoline. But if you subtract out 20% of ethanol's energy inputs to account for those co-products, that means E100 reduces greenhouse gas emissions by 4.5%. So anyway, it blends currently at use today. Ethanol does not reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And even at higher blends, they probably do not either. But that's in ideal growing conditions in Iowa, state where I'm from. Now, if we increase ethanol production, we are probably going to get it from marginal lands. After all, the best way to get more ethanol is to grow more corn, and the best places to grow more corn today are in lands which are less fertile than the lands already being used, which means more fertilizers, more pesticides, more irrigation than the corn we're currently growing, which means higher energy inputs, which means more greenhouse gas emissions. And what this MIT study was found is that regardless of what you think about ethanol today, at the margin, ethanol absolutely, and with no doubt whatsoever, increases greenhouse gas emissions given increments of, of, uh, of production increases envisioned in the law today. So actually, believe it or not, ethanol is even dirtier than gasoline, even when it comes to global warming and greenhouse gas. Now, sometimes we hear, well, maybe all this is true, but we need a level playing field. Oil companies get their subsidies. Why shouldn't corn farmers? Well, even that's a bit of an overstatement. According to the best study I've seen on this, the petroleum industry gets about $1.6 billion of tax subsidies a year. And by the way, they shouldn't get that. And I've written uh, and I've criticized against those subsidies uh, for a long time. But two wrongs don't make a right. Regardless, ethanol subsidies aren't $1.6 billion. They work out to about 6 to $9 billion, according to the most recent survey conducted by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, which works out to about $1.05 to $1.38 per gallon. In other words, ethanol subsidies don't level the playing field. They tilt and rig the playing field dramatically. Without them, ethanol disappears. The subsidies provided to the oil industry do not affect oil prices because they don't reflect marginal production costs. And though, though that which does not affect marginal production costs does not affect price. They're bad and objectionable. They're transfers of wealth from drivers to oil companies. They don't affect price very much. The ethanol subsidies, however, do affect marginal production costs and thus affect price. Another claim we heard from Mr. Durani is that, well, even that, even that being true, ethanol at least helps farmers in rural America. So we should applaud it for that, right? Well, this is like going to Houston and saying, yeah, but higher oil prices sure as heck helps Texas, doesn't it? Yeah, people in Texas would probably agree with that. But the objective of public policy should not be to enrich them farmers and impoverish everyone else. Farm income, I need, may, I, may I remind you, is about 10 or 11 percent greater than non-farm income. Farmers and the farm in rural America have no equity claims on the rest of us. And if we're going to defend this as a policy of welfare for farmers, let's be honest about it. Another claim we hear is that doubling corn prices will not affect prices for other things at all. Now, this is amazing to me. It's belied, by the way, by the claims of virtually every single corporation and trade association involved in the food processing business and by common sense. When corn prices double, that is going to have an effect on food prices. What the exact effect is, as Mr. Granny says, this is very difficult to ascertain because there are a lot of things which, are, which go into food pricing, and it's very hard to isolate that part of it, which is related to the increase in corn prices. But if you could double corn prices and not increase prices everywhere else as a, in, in uh, related products as a consequence, you'd be performing an economic miracle. I don't think that that's really in play here. Final claim that we heard tonight was that corn ethanol, despite all of its other shortcomings, at least gets us a little further down that path to the promised land of cellulosic ethanol. 
Now, to me, that's belief in the tooth fairy. I don't know that. If you ask the question, well, gee, how far away is cellulosic ethanol? Uh, all I can tell you is there's not a commercially operational cellulosic ethanol plant on planet Earth. There's absolutely no profit in this whatsoever. The plants we do see are public-private partnerships, and there are a handful of those. What are production costs at those plants? According to the chief of the Energy Information Administration, about 750 a gallon in capital costs before we can get to the cost of what they have to pay for the switch grass or whatever they're using for fuel. So we're a long, long ways away from seeing cellulosic ethanol competing in the market for our transportation fuel needs. Will that change in the future? I don't know. But I can guarantee you that when it makes sense to invest in cellulosic ethanol, private investors will invest in cellulosic ethanol as they are doing today. You've probably read in the papers that Richard, Br Richard Branson from Virgin Atlantic and the, uh, your, your uh, neighbor Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and other investors are spending a lot of money on exotic cellulosic ethanol technologies. That's fine. They're capital and good luck to them. But there's no need for the federal government to subsidize those investments or to force taxpayers to make investments they otherwise would rather not make. So the bottom line here is that ethanol may very well have merit, but if it has merit, it does not need government to tell the rest of us to buy it regardless of price. It should be able to compete in the market on its own. The fact is it can't compete in the market on its own, which is why we're having this discussion tonight. I know I'm in the Cornhusker state, and corn, however, unfortunately, is not the only thing being husked, so we're taxpayers outside of Nebraska. Anyway, I appreciate the opportunity to come to the Vatican and express my agnosticism, and I look forward to the Inquisition to come for the rest of the evening. Thank you. Doug Durante, I believe your name was mentioned. You have a few minutes to respond. Uh, well done, Jerry. Well done. How would you like to wake up to that every day? I don't, mean, I don't mean Jerry himself. I mean those complaints, because <clears throat> that's what we're doing in Washington. And, uh, and I'm, I'm quite uh, prepared to, and I know a lot of people in our industry are, you know, it's, it's, these, are, these are questions. If we're going to make some policy moves and directions, uh, it's, it's a fair set of questions to ask, you know, and, and so I have no problem with that. I, I do have some problem with some of the information, and we just simply differ on that. Uh, I do know a lot about air pollution. I served on the Regulatory Negotiating Committee for the Clean Air Act. I've been an advisor to EPA. And, Jerry, that is absolutely incorrect. We have used ethanol as an additive to gasoline in federal reformulated gasoline, and it has reduced ground-level ozone. In fact, it has never failed to do that. It replaced MTBE. MTBE did a great job as an oxygenate, and ethanol has done a great job, too. It has been in use in Chicago since 1992, and it has continued to reduce exceedances. You quote places that are in uh, violation of, of that because they were so severe. When we first passed the Clean Air Act, they said Los Angeles would never come into compliance. They said it would never come into compliance, but let's, you know, let's try. What the heck? And it's in compliance now um, for carbon monoxide and some other standards. By the way, on carbon monoxide, there's a separate program during the winter months for carbon monoxide. Jerry is absolutely correct. There's no carbon monoxide program because ethanol is used in almost every single one of those places, and it has wiped out carbon monoxide. But you've got to continue to use it, otherwise it's going to come back. And that is a documented fact. It is used in Clark County, Nevada today, and uh, as an example, in Phoenix, places like that. They have to use it year-round in order to maintain those low levels. 
So I don't want to be blamed for our uh, successes. We've got enough other things that, that we really have to talk about. But it has been very successful. There's been very successful in reformulated gasoline. And that's simply not true. And the EPA would not support that statement. And I will, I will not yield that ground. Evaporative emissions, okay, that's something. Uh, you quote this California study. That California study took what we have to deal with all the time in this industry is a wild scenario of the entire state running on E85, which is absolutely impossible. That was the, that was the model that would run on E85, and it would be doing that 20 years out in the future using today's technology. So there was no credit given for these cars getting constantly better. They have to have a zero evaporative control factor on these cars and so the older model of E85s would have some evaps. And, but the idea that we would ever have enough E85 cars or E85 to turn that whole state uh, to an E85 state w w was just insane. So, uh, okay, those findings may have had that, but that was not a real-world scenario. And I don't think it was constructive uh, for those guys to do that study that way. A uh, couple of other things I just would comment on. I'm just flabbergasted to suggest that oil is a more... Uh, uh, is a commodity we could count on more than corn. I mean, I understand the pitfalls of a drought and what that might mean, but again, when you look at uh, some of the places we get our oil, and even today there was more talk about Iran, uh, I, I just can't believe that that would somehow be preferred. Pitfalls were not. Uh, capital cost of these plants. You don't get to add these capital costs in all the time. There's capital costs with everything. The production cost of ethanol is about a dollar on the ethanol side for corn, and you've got 10 cents on debt and 10 cents on a couple of other things, and you are under $2 production. And you can adjust it all you want for energy, but its value is primarily as an additive. So that, when it's used in the small increments, that energy loss doesn't really come into play. So it is competitive. It's certainly competitive these prices. By the way, prices, I have a stack of prices in my briefcase. I haven't seen a $1.86 in the spot market in a long time. So I think we have different sources, but I have Opus and I have some other things. We're looking at, at ethanol futures. The Chicago Board of Trade futures are a buck fifty-nine for the next uh, several months. So that's, that's a big difference. That's the 20% that you might want to adjust. So I don't agree with those uh, prices at all. Um, the, uh, the food issue. Uh, again, the numbers have not, and I, I agree, we can't double corn prices and not have an impact. The issue is, is it appreciable? Is it prohibitive? Is it something that would cause us to say, you know what, um, uh, I'm not going to pay that much for my Gouda cheese anymore, and um, so I think we should use more oil. And these are the kinds of choices as, as that our, our leaders in Congress and others have to make. So, again, to force the situation, to force ethanol, uh, petroleum companies to buy ethanol, is unfortunately, in my view, necessary because they're in the oil business. They're not in the ethanol business. And they don't provide the benefits that domestic ethanol does. And if left to their own devices, they wouldn't buy it, other than for some additive uh, uses, which it still is very economical for them. But generally, they wouldn't buy it. So I think they have to be. Uh, one of my favorite uh, lines in all of Congress and all my uh, career was your own former Senator Bob Kerry. And uh, we had a very heated debate. Uh, one time on the Senate floor, and we were hanging around, and, and somebody was lambasting him for uh, for messing with the market. And they said, "You know, we 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 don't you know we don't do that." And uh, and he turned to them on the Senate floor. He said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "That's what we do here. When we we need to straighten things out and balance them out and get them to do, go the way we want them to, that's what we do. We do manipulate the market. So we're, we're, again, it's almost like 
the accusation that we're, we're or, or the complaint that we're not the panacea, which we never tried to be, uh, I'm, I don't think we can operate in a free market. This isn't a free market that we have. We do not have a petroleum free market. And to get the benefits that I still believe come with this program, I think we do have to require it. And last word, and uh, uh, is the subsidy, uh, I, I know how you feel on that, and I didn't come here to defend the subsidy. Uh, I think it's fine. I think it returns plenty. Uh, I think it's important to understand what this subsidy is. It's lower taxes. I'm talking about the federal, just the federal level. It is lower taxes. Ethanol is taxed at a lower rate than petroleum products. If we don't want to use more ethanol and we don't want to encourage its use, then we should tax it at the full rate, but we don't. And there's lots of things that the federal government wants to encourage, and they tax at a lower rate or give you a tax break to do that. The federal government encourages home ownership, so they do not fully tax you in terms of letting you write off your, uh, your mortgage interest. There's things that we want to have done, and we want to have alternative fuels and the jobs that come with it and all the things that come with it, and that's one way to do it is to tax you lower. And that is, in reality, um, how that system works. And the sad part for us right now is the farmers, somebody who grows corn, they don't get that. That doesn't go to them. That's a separate thing on any, any ag policies. The motor fuel credit goes to petroleum companies who blend ethanol, and they are given a tax credit to do that, to encourage them. So those were just some of my notes and some of my responses to that. And uh, Mr. Uh, Moderator, I guess we'll give one more. Well, it's a good thing I'm here tonight. Because you're welcome to have your own opinion, but not on your own set of facts. Uh, Mr. Durante mentions that ethanol improves air quality and is just shocked, shocked that I would complain or argue to the contrary because we use ethanol as a fuel additive in this country and we formulate a gasoline, and everyone knows that that improves air quality. I'm sure it does. Ethanol is one of the various things we can use to make a formulated gasoline, which does improve air quality. But that's not what I'm talking about. The academic literature, which is virtually universal on the subject, finds that when you use ethanol beyond in very, very small amounts as a fuel additive when making reformulated gasoline, and you're using it at 10% of the blend, which is what we're doing across the country today, that you have these very severe pollution impacts. So it's true that when making reformulated gasoline, ethanol can provide a contribution. But so can other things. As far as that goes, you can make reformulated gasoline in a lot of different ways. But it is not true that that observation means that we can use E10, E85, or E100 and not see major deterioration in air quality because virtually all the literature on this subject points in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, Mr. Durante had the curious objection to the study from uh, uh, Professor Mark Jacobson at Stanford. He said, well, it's a little bit unfair to say E85, if it were used universally, would increase mortality 4% around the United States and 9% in Los Angeles because no one is talking about using E85 universally. Well, that's true enough, I suppose. I'm sure there are people who'd like to do that. But the fact is, if E85, if used universally, will increase mortality that much, then a little bit of E85 is not going to be a positive thing from a health perspective. In other words, it puts things into perspective. It's not a rebuttal to the observation that Professor Jacobson found, that E85 does deteriorate air quality and does have a human health impact by saying, well, he was using it in a model which assumed much greater use than I want to assume. That's true enough, but it does not belay the underlying point. Mr. Durante said he was flabbergasted to think that ethanol is less reliable than oil. Well, again, you're welcome to your own religion, but you're not welcome to your own set of facts. Uh, 
The reality is, is that corn production in the United States is twice as volatile as is oil imports into the United States. It might surprise many of you, like it obviously would surprise Mr. Durante, to discover that oil imports in 1973, the year of the embargo, were greater than they were in 1972, and they were greater yet in 1974. And in fact, every year during the 1970s, we saw greater and in increases in oil imports, not decreases. The reason we had lines in the United States and rationing and the rest of it is because we had price controls, not because anybody was withholding oil. We were getting all the oil we needed on international markets. So the fact is, if you're willing to pay the market clearing price, you can have all the oil you want. Anybody who's willing to go to Rotterdam with a credit card can have all they want to bring home. But when weather turns bad in the Midwest and in the heartland, you can't have all the corn you want. That's impossible. And those harvests are twice as volatile as oil imports are. Uh, on the fourth point, Mr. Um, Mr. Dranny said, well, he doesn't agree with me about the ethanol price information. He's got some other mysterious sources of information. My, I, I anticipated something like this, so I brought along my copy of Alternative Fuels Index, dated October 11th. This is the main trade publication for the, for the alternative fuels industry. And you'll find here that there is spot market prices. Last week in Omaha, ethanol was selling at a buck seventy a gallon. At North Platte, it was selling at a dollar eighty-nine a gallon, or dollar eighty-nine a gallon. Uh, so I'm not sure what Mr. Dranny is driving at, but there's no doubt about that data. Finally, Mr. Dranny said, "Look, we don't have a free market in energy, and we're not going to start now. Well, we don't have a free market in energy because of policies like this, because government rigs the market to favor some investments over others, to favor some constituents over others, and to gain political capital." They do that in all sorts of markets. Energy is not unique in that regard. But it's a bad thing to do because when we mandate ethanol consumption, we are mandating the consumption of fuels that are more expensive than the other fuels we might have used. So it's not just that ethanol is worsening the environment, though it is. And it's not just that ethanol is a less reliable source of energy than oil, though it is. It's also that ethanol is way more expensive than conventional gasoline, and it's increasing and not decreasing pump prices. Question, do politicians say, vote for me because I will hammer through an ethanol program that will raise your fuel prices, because that will help corn farmers in Nebraska? No, they don't do that, because they allege that the ethanol program has impacts to the contrary when we know full well that it does not. So anyway, those are my thoughts regarding the conversation thus far, and I look forward to hearing yours and answering your questions. But thank you. One significant piece of information we can take from these speakers is that I believe we're on the verge of some uncertain, potentially scary times, and with diminished oil production and climate change bearing down on us. And for those reasons, we need to make some wise energy choices. I'm hoping that we can glean some wisdom from your questions and from their answers tonight, and I hope you're, you're filling out your cards. The first question comes from the Thompson Scholars Learning Community. I think it's a trick question myself. And I'm, I'm going to direct this, I think, to uh, Doug. How will the rise in demand of food globally affect the future production of biofuels? That's the kind of question uh, I was referring to before when, you know, I, I think is a very 
very fair question, and, you know, sure, I'm concerned about that, and most people I work with and for are concerned about that. Would you you want to have such reliance on biofuels and go so far out in front that growing something for uh, for energy becomes more valuable than growing it for food? I I can't speak globally because it's a little more than my beat is, but I can tell you that here that's already become a very real issue. Uh, Congress is contemplating an energy bill right now that uh, has some caps put in place that, or they're attempting to put some caps in place that would address that. So I think, I think that's a good question. I certainly don't want to see that happen. I certainly don't want to see fuel valued over food. And again, I, I can't speak to other countries, but at least for us, we're trying to control that, put some caps in that would limit the amount you can, uh, of corn you could use and feed grains that you could use for fuel in order to try to drive some of these other technologies. I have an environmental question here from a viewer in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Kind of a complicated question, so bear with me. Assuming that carbon dioxide is a major byproduct of all fermentation, including the fermentation of ethanol, including the manufacture of ethanol, what is being done to prevent further release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? And why do we want to subsidize ethanol if the byproduct is contributing to global warming? Doug, I want to, I want to give that question to you again because I think that, uh, uh, I, I, I believe that, uh, your competitor's, uh, presentation was fairly heavily loaded on the environment. So do you mind taking that question? Well, it's my understanding is that, first of all, with this becoming an issue, there's growing efforts to uh, capture and recycle that, put it to other uses. There are other uses for CO2. There's a capital uh, investment involved in capturing that. And, and to be honest with you, you know, up to this point, that hasn't been something that these plants looked into. But it's, it's not a huge capital investment, and there are ways to... Uh, to capture that CO2 and put it to use, whether it's in bottling or whether it's used in uh, oil drilling recovery or any number of things. There's other chemicals, other fuels you can make from it. So, again, uh, Bill, I think if that's what we want to do, control control these things, then we're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, figure out ways to do that. But it really hasn't been done to date, and I think it needs to start. Here, here's a question for Jerry. And... Uh, I want to add my own question. Why would anyone support biofuels when solar and wind are truly renewable energy sources? And as an addendum to that, Jerry, you've uh, been very articulate in your, your, your skepticism tonight. What, what might be your short list of, of, of energy alternatives as we, as we approach these crunch times? Well, it's certainly true that wind and solar energy are, are more deserving of the title renewable than is ethanol because of the huge amounts of coal and natural gas required to produce ethanol, not at the processing plant, by the way, but in the manufacture of the fertilizer and the other goods that, and the other inputs necessary to grow corn in this country. Uh, but unfortunately, wind and solar don't really have much to do with the transportation sector because we only use about 2% of the oil in this country to make electricity. Mostly, we use oil to make refined products to move our vehicles around. 
We don't use wind and solar power to move our vehicles around. Until battery technology gets better, you can build 100 wind power plants and 100 solar power plants, and just to make Republicans happy, 100 nuclear power plants, and it would not reduce oil consumption hardly at all because they're different sectors. You might reduce coal consumption. You might reduce natural gas consumption. But the electricity sector and the transportation sector are entirely different. So it's not like we choose between ethanol and solar and wind power. They're competing in different markets. What was your second question? I'm sorry, Tom. What's your prescription for ah. energy independence or energy? What, what, is, what is the path that you would prescribe if elected and you decided to serve? If nominated, I would ignore the nomination. If drafted, I would not serve, believe me. Um, well, that's a, that's a big, broad question. What do I think public policy ought to be in a minute or less? Um, as far as the environmental aspects of public policy are concerned, if, now I'm going to make a classic if-then proposition, do not hold me to the if, but if it's believed important to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then the appropriate policy is a carbon tax or a, tax or a cap and trade program which establishes overall policy and then leaves it to market agents to figure out the cheapest and most efficient way to comply with those controls. That proposition is virtually universally held by economists, whether they're liberals or conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, Methodists, or Catholics. It's pretty hard to find anybody in the academic community who would disagree with that. So if we think it's important to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then the right policy is for government to be relatively agnostic about the best ways to do that, to establish an overall limit or an overall price for carbon, and then let market actors figure it out. As far as energy independence is concerned, I'll probably get myself in trouble for saying this because it's not the most popular thing to do when you're pandering to an audience, but I think energy independence is nonsense. If you read The Wealth of Nations, there's no asterisk that says unless BTU is concerned, does free trade make any sense. We import oil for a reason. It's cheaper than getting it from somewhere else. And if it weren't cheaper, we wouldn't be buying it from those sources. And if you say, well, but we're buying it from insecure sources, well, they're less insecure than, say, Mother Nature. And the reality is, as much as we may not like Iran, Iran's oil production decisions don't look any different from Canada's. They need the money, which is why they sell oil. Now, many of you are probably listening and saying, well, that's all well and good, but as a consumer, I don't want to spend my money on products that are going to enrich uh, Adimajad or the House of Saud or, you know, pick your bad guy who sells oil. Well, that's fine. You don't have to go out and buy gasoline if you don't want. And if the ethanol industry were to market its product and say, yeah, we know it's more expensive. We know that it's maybe 60 or 70 cents a gallon more expensive than conventional gasoline today, but it's made in America and it will send cash to Nebraska and Iowa and it's a good thing to do and you ought to buy it and voluntarily pay more. And if you're willing to do that, I'd have no complaint whatsoever. But the industry doesn't try to voluntarily get you to do that. They, have, they draft politicians to make you buy this stuff, whether you agree with that proposition or not. And that's where I disagree with current policy. I have a pile of questions here on an issue that is dear to Nebraskans, water. And I'll read the, the one on top. Water is often referred to as the next oil. Could both of you comment on the consumption of water in ethanol production? Doug, could you go, could you go first on that? Yes, this is a, a fairly new set of questions that... Uh, I mean, we, we always knew ethanol used water, didn't know a lot about it until we started looking into it. And um, 
first of all, any of these fuels that we make, petroleum, refined into gasoline, uses water. In fact, uses close to what ethanol uses. And ethanol plants do use water. So if we're going to have more ethanol plants, it's like everything else. Let's conserve water. Let's not overuse it. When you get a plant permitted, you've got to get your air permit. You've got to have your water allocation permit. So the idea that you could just go and turn on the spigot at home and run your ethanol plant, it doesn't work that way. So I'm not minimizing it, but if it's a problem, then we've got to regulate it. We've got to do it right. Now, having said that, we are getting better and better on the ratio of water we're using. There's new technologies coming all the time to uh, recycle it and try to capture some of the water. So it, it is an issue, and it is an issue that comes with growth. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You know, it, it, let, let's not let's not get derailed by this. It's a it's a serious issue. Let's do it and do it right. The allocation for water has got to compete with every other, whether it's a golf course or growing corn or a community or anything else. And uh, I don't know anybody, at least that I work with, that uh, would want to see this not done properly. Well, according to people who crunch the numbers and calculate how much water is necessary to produce a gallon of ethanol, both in the production of corn and in the processing of corn and ethanol, uh, you get different numbers, uh, but they're huge. There's absolutely no disagreement about that. Ethanol is like a gigantic industrial straw, which sucks water out of groundwater aquifers. Now, normally, as a libertarian, that wouldn't bother me a whole lot. But the reality is it does because we don't price water. We ration water. We allocate it based on polit politics, but we don't pay market prices for it. We subsidize water use in this country. We massively subsidize it for the agricultural sector. Farmers pay maybe 10% of the market price for water. And municipalities get a little bit uh, less of a, of a healthy deal, but they're still being subsidized for the most part. In other words, we don't allocate scarce water resources based on price. We allocate it based on politics. And while it's, I would like to think that given scarcity and given the fact that we run markets right out of this sector, that if there's a problem, I'm sure government will take care of it for us and regulate wisely and appropriately. Well, I think that's a fairy tale. <laughs> I don't believe government will do that. I believe if passed this prologue, government will subsidize the excessive use of water up to the point at which the water virtually disappears. That's probably not a good bet for us to make. So it's a very good question. Ethanol has a lot of environmental consequences that point in, the, in a very negative direction beyond air quality. I'm glad one of the viewers brought up water. Here's a question for Doug, a uh, question we had earlier today. Can a corn ethanol plant also make other biofuels if, say, uh, can, can a corn ethanol plant make other, also make other biofuels? And, and what I think they're getting at here, what is the future of these refineries if and when cellulosic tech technology arrives? Uh, we did talk about that in a meeting we had earlier. And, uh, again, I have a different view than Jerry does, and then, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, it's not completely... Uh, mix and match there. The back end of these plants, once you get to uh, the point where you're going into distillation, is the same. So the front for these cellulosic plants is quite different. You've got to do different things to the feedstock and get it ready to be able to, to turn into ethanol. So it's a different operation, but it's very, uh, very wise, in fact, to combine it with an existing plant where you've got infrastructure and you've got utilities and you've got handling and you've got all that stuff. 
So, uh, yeah, by all means, it can be. You just opened the Abengoa plant just had an opening the other day down the road here. So we're not seeing a lot of it because there's not a lot done with cellulose, but there's a lot of places where they're taking advantage of the fact that one of the great sources of cellulose is agriculture waste. You're already gathering the corn. You're already in that sort of line of work. So it makes perfect sense to have the same people that gather corn to gather the waste. So I think there's a possibility to uh, to put those two together. Not on the scale. What, what we envision, what I envision for truly big biorefineries that use mass quantities of, of feedstocks other than corn, that would be a different a different thing altogether. But for now, there is an opportunity to put these two together and get some synergy. Well, it's important to say yes and no. I mean, if you ask the question, can we use corn ethanol plants to make cellulosic ethanol if you just put switchgrass into the plant instead of corn? The answer is no. If the question is, well, can you retrofit those plants to do that? Yeah, I guess you could. But it would be a massive retrofit. To give you an idea, the capital costs associated with corn ethanol production, as I mentioned earlier tonight, were about $1.50 a gallon. According to the EIA, the capital costs associated with cellulosic ethanol today, using current technology, is about five times that, or $7.50 a gallon. So it's not an easy thing to turn that capital stock into something that can use cellulosic ethanol. So the idea that investments in corn ethanol pave the way for the future of cellulosic ethanol is just incorrect. It's, an, it's largely a different business. But if it's free or low or no-cost feedstock, Jerry, how can, how can you say that? How can the stover that's lying in the field, assume you don't need it for soil protection or something, uh, first of all, that's a very high capital cost, but that's one person's guess, and, and it's a guess because there are no cellulosic plants, as we agree but how can these low to no cost feedstocks not make sense to combine that with an existing plant? Well, it takes different technology. It's you can't use the technology in a corn ethanol plant to make cellulosic ethanol, given the current the current challenges associated with cellulosic ethanol production. Now, the fact is, just because a feedstock is cheap doesn't necessarily mean that the economic process is worthwhile. There are capital costs and there's marginal costs. For instance, we know nuclear power has very low marginal costs. When you talk to nuclear power proponents, they say nuclear power is the cheapest form of energy known to man. Yeah, if somebody gives you a nuclear power plant and says go forth and make power, but no one does that. It takes a lot of dollars to build that plant. And once you look at the capital costs associated with, say, nuclear power, well, that makes it one of the most expensive sources of electricity on the grid today. But we're Same thing applies to like, ethanol. Things like fractionation and splitting the corn kernel, doing different things with it. So I, I would just say I know what some of these plants cost. When you look through the details, if you could take a third or, a, or, or some percentage of that that you didn't have to build from scratch and could combine that with some of the cellulosic development, it's, to me it makes perfect sense. Well, if it makes sense, I'm waiting for the first investor to translate that economic sense into reality. Well, they're trying. There's, uh, I think we're a lot closer on the cellulose than people think. Uh, we have a member company that belongs to my group that has demonstrated the technology in, in the they had to go to Japan to do it but uh, because it was too expensive here. So I'll be the first to admit it's too expensive. But it does work. And they're using an acid uh, process to break down materials and turn it into ethanol. And it was too expensive years ago when they left, but that was before oil hit 80 bucks a barrel. So I, I think we're getting closer on some of these. Does he and, want a uh, subsidy? Does he want a subsidy? Yeah. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, I think he got a grant from DOE. So, yeah. Uh, Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Durani, here's a lighter question for you, a fun question. Have you seen the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? It, and, and a bit of background, it's about a development of a special battery 
uh, as a source of, of energy for vehicles, but it was purchased by a large oil company, then submarined. Are the oil companies really interested in alternative energy? Uh, I've not seen that movie. I know the storyline, um, and that is disturbing to see that EV1 go away, but uh, that was a neat-looking car. Uh, are the oil companies interested in alternatives? You know, I, I gave you some examples of some that are. Some uh, wouldn't use ethanol if you tied them down and poured red ants on them. And um, I found it extremely interesting two years ago or three years ago when we had the, the first of the really jolting price hikes and uh, I was just amazed at this when uh, Tim Russert uh, was able to get four of the top oil guys to come in to meet the press and just beating on them. Why aren't you doing more with ethanol? And if I would have been working for them, I would have said, tell them we're not in the ethanol business. Because that's the truth. To be screaming at these oil companies why they weren't doing more. And it's, I don't know. It, why aren't you doing more for ABC? You work for NBC. So the answer is basically no. Um, that's not their business. They're in the petroleum business. And as I said, I'm... I'm not one of these alt-fuel people that we want to wipe them out and, and, and take them out, but I think they need to make room. But, no, I, I don't think they are. I think there's some exceptions. As I said, BP, uh, some of the others, you know, they, they uh, are doing some things. But generally, um, that's not a good thing for them to take a unit of their product out and replace it with a unit of ethanol. So, no. Another question for you, Doug. You're quite popular. How will plug-in hybrid technology impact the potential role of biofuels? I believe that biofuels, uh, and we've been saying all along, are limited. You saw my pie chart. Even under the wildestly optimistic scenarios of a combination of grain and cellulose, what, what did we have? 60% or 40%. So it's still left 60% to go after. I think if you could be economical on those cars, particularly uh, any of these hybrids that could use ethanol and electricity, could be a, a dream date in terms of displacing gasoline. But... So I, I really do. I think we need it all. The, the question is, is it really practical and could we really foresee a day where we have, you know, all these little ants running around doing things? We learned during the Clean Air Act that didn't work. We tried to carve out a role for low-emission vehicles, um, ultra-low-emission vehicles, zero-emission vehicles. We thought that that would sort of take care of the alcohols and natural gas, electricity and everything. And they all wound up taking each other out. So I, I'm not sure, uh, Bill. I, I don't know that... You know, while the pie is big enough, there's certainly plenty of energy to go consume. You know, you've got to get the automakers and others to focus on this, and, um, and I'm, I'm not sure that they could coexist. You know, the interesting thing is, is that plug-in hybrids just cut out the ethanol middleman. I mean, after all, the electricity has to come from somewhere. Where does the electricity come from when you plug in your car if we ever get to the point where the battery technology, which doesn't exist today, affords us the opportunity to drive cars like that? Get it from coal and natural gas plants. That's where you get it. That's where we get the energy associated with making ethanol. The only difference between a plug-in hybrid power, a battery which uses the electricity directly from the grid to move from point A to point B, and ethanol, is you don't have to wash all that fossil fuels into the, into the land to grow corn and then process the fuel to move the car. We just cut out the corn farmer middleman and do it directly. Here's a corn question for, for either one of you. This year we are seeing just shy of 93 million acres of corn in the U.S., the highest since 1944. Do you envision increased land usage for corn production, putting pressure on conservation reserve land? And what do you have to say about the effects of the livestock industry uh, by, by ethanol? 
I think you alluded to that, Jerry, in your in your uh, uh, conversation. So let's let's let uh, Doug rebut that in a sense. Well, I, that's, I'm not a, an expert on <clears throat> growing as much as I am on the fuel and some other areas, but. Um, I actually asked a good friend of mine in the Department of Agriculture this the other day. I was reading a statistic that the Secretary of Agriculture released, and he was talking about how much corn and we need a couple of million more acres. And I called this guy, who I know really well. I said, do we have that? I mean, do we have that around, and where, where would that come from? And uh, the explanation he gave and, and some others who have no dog in this fight, I mean, they, they, they really don't, that, sure, it's going to cause some shifts from one crop to another. It could affect prices. It could but, but it's not, at least at this point, not enough to create any, any big problems. So, uh, again, we've got to engage in responsible farming practices, to not go on protected lands, to do the things we need to do. At this point, we're not at a level where that's going to be a problem. But it would cause some change in, in growing patterns, maybe away from soy into something else. But um, I hope that there's people out there that are... Uh, uh, crop managers and can do this right. And, again, this is what I keep referring to before. This is a fair question and a good question. And at some point uh, we're going to find out, you know, how much we can make from corn before it becomes a, huge, you know, a real problem. Here's a great question. Does Jerry Taylor truly believe that the American and world free market will take responsibility for the environmental impacts of energy production and other environmental problems? Let's ask them. No. I mean, unless, unless government regulates the public commons, then people will pollute. I mean, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. <laughs> if the government didn't regulate air quality in Los Angeles, private companies would have very little incentive not to, uh, to, to pollute to their heart's content. So I don't believe that the, that the market and market actors should be allowed to do whatever they want, absent government regulation. It's never been my proposition. But ethanol, by virtually every metric, will worsen and not improve air quality, which is the reason I bring it up and I hammer the point today. Because if you worry about these things, if you worry about greenhouse gas emissions, if you worry about urban air quality, ethanol is not your friend, and we shouldn't be subsidizing it. Here's a question. What kind of car... Does each of you drive? I drive a Chevy flexible fuel E85 vehicle. The think tank business is a bit less lucrative than the lobbying business, so I drive a 96 uh, Honda Accord. On that, I think that uh, the time of, of, of the bewitching hour has arrived, and I should think we should thank our, our speakers who have traveled here tonight. And thank you all for coming. <laughs>